Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the, Old Te- or to the New Testament book of Acts. The New Testament book of Acts in Acts chapter number 18. The book of Acts and chapter number 18. We're starting a brand new series tonight dealing with the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go through this book line upon line, precept upon precept, seeing what is happening in this important book of the Bible where the Apostle Paul is sending loving correction and rebuke to a group of people that he loves very much. Now, in order to get the proper context of the book of 1 Corinthians, we need to see historically, where did this church come from? What was its beginnings? To see how much Paul invested inside of this church of Corinth. We find this mention in the book of Acts in chapter number 18. The book of Acts chapter number 18, and if you don't mind looking with me in verse number 1. The book of Acts chapter 18 and verse number 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately coming from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded that all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. Because he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for they were, by their occupation they were tent makers." And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy, uh, Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said upon them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house and many of the Corinthians are hearing believed and were baptized then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision be not afraid but speak and hold not thy peace for I am with thee and no man should set thee to hurt thee for I have much people in this city And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Acts chapter number 18? Acts chapter 18, and notice as Paul gives this rebuke to them in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 6, he said, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. And if you don't mind, let's rearrange the title a little bit and title this, Clean from the Blood. Clean 
from the blood. And with the Lord's help, we want to study the beginning of this church of Corinth and see this theme that Paul has here, clean from the blood. Let's go to the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And thank you for the great privilege it is to be in your house today. And Lord, as we approach this message, I'm excited to start this series and I'm excited to dive through this passage. And we're praying that it would be a great help and encouragement. It would set a good tone and tenor as we explore the book of 1 Corinthians. We're asking that you would give us much discernment, that you would give us great understanding, and that most importantly, that you would show us you from your precious word, and that we would respond properly to the vision of God that we have. Teach us, Lord. We give you permission. Lord, the best I know how I surrender myself to you. Ask that you fill me with your spirit, that you could get your own work accomplished. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're going to do. We do love you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Acts, chapter number 18, the Apostle Paul is continuing his missionary journeys. In there, in Acts chapter 17, he had just spent some time in the book of or in the city of Athens. There in Athens, the Greeks, they loved knowledge and they wanted to know new things. Athens was very sophisticated. Athens was a very learned place. Paul, while he was there, was stirred up with all of the idolatry and all of the fake gods and all of their knowledge. And he preached a strong intellectual message, but he had little results. That uh, setting of the book of, um, and the book of Acts chapter 16 or 17, dealing with the city of Athens, this is going to stir him up for his ministry plan inside of the church of Corinth. We'll see that as we dive deeper into that book, but that's an important context, not just starting the church of Corinth, but what happened inside of the book of um, Acts 17, inside of the city of Athens. It affected Paul richly that he preached an intellectual message. He preached with history. He used their culture. He used their ways. He spoke their language, uh, meaning how they spoke. He tried to reach them at their level, all using intellectual uh, wits, intellectual ideas, trying to match them in knowledge. Very little results. I'll give you the hint. Later on, Paul says, I determined to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. He said, instead of doing all these fancy messages with all of this background and stuff, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm just going to preach Christ. I'm going to preach Christ. And what happens when he gets there inside of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, that's exactly what he practices. He's not teaching history. He's not going to intellectual. He's not trying to match them. He's not trying to show his knowledge. He's not trying to show my background on your culture. He says, I know one thing, Christ and him crucified. And that's what I'm preaching, Christ and him crucified. And I'm letting everyone know about Christ and Christ crucified. Now, Corinth was a much different animal than Athens. Athens, they were learned and sophisticated. Corinth, not so much so. In Athens, people were confident in what man could get accomplished, and they were satisfied with what man could get accomplished. They had an idea of man was enlightened, man was smart, man was intelligent, man was capable. But in Corinth, it was different. It was a very worldly city. It was a rich city, it was a wealthy city, but it was a very 
worldly city. The city of Corinth was placed on an isthmus. For those of you who may not remember geography from inside of um, uh, high school, an isthmus was a small little land area that would connect two larger bodies. And so there would be an isthmus of Greece. And so this isthmus was able to carry ships and cargo from one side of the sea to the other side of the sea. That way they didn't have to sail the Aegean Sea all the way through the rocky coast of Greece, which would be very dangerous and time consuming. It would save sailors months weeks, days, I forgot the exact thing, but it would save them a good amount of time. But what they would do in order to uh, carry this is that they would have not a canal, but they would actually take the ships on dry land and they would have something like a log system to carry them and to work hard to drag the ships, the cargo from the sea on one side across the landmass to the sea on the other side. It was a very hard work, but it was a very well healthy, profitable work. Now, because of the type of hard workers that you had, drunkenness was very much a big deal in the city of Corinth. Uh, Sexual sins was very much a big practice within um, Corinth. So much so that there was a phrase inside of the Greek language that was a common usage to do the Corinthian. When you would say that someone was off doing the Corinthian, you were saying that that person was being involved in drunkenness and sexual uh, sins of some sort. Uh, uh, Corinth was known for its debauchery, for its baseness, that it would even used as a byword. Today we would say, oh man, they're going to Vegas. We would all know that going to Vegas is not a good place to go. Not good sins, not a good lifestyle. And that's what Corinth was 24-7. Just dock workers, people that were making lots of money, but they worked hard and they played hard. They had nothing else to live for. They went to drunkenness. They went to sexual sins. They went to this. This was the lifestyle. So Corinth, very sophisticated, very smart, very intellectual, very knowledgeable. Corinth was just, we work hard. This is what we are. We're not trying to pretend. We drink, we eat, we we make merry. This is what we are. It was a different mindset. And because of that, there was a different way that they received the gospel, meaning that the intellectuals, we're good. We don't need it. The Corinthians knew they weren't good. They knew they were debauched. They knew they were full of sin. They were full of guilt and they were ready to accept Christ. So with this, as Paul is getting ready to go, we want to understand this phrase that he said that I'm free, clean from your blood. I'm clean from your blood. What does this phrase mean? Where does it come from? Well, hold your finger here. This actually comes from an Old Testament reference that we find inside of the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. Now turn with me, if you don't mind, in Ezekiel chapter 3. This same passage is repeated in Ezekiel chapter 33, but we don't need to look at both of them. They say the same thing. But look with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Ezekiel chapter number 3. We're looking at this phrase where Paul said, I'm clean from your blood. Where did this come from? What did it mean? Now, remember when he's saying that, he's saying to Hebrew people. Hebrew people would know their Bible. The Jewish people would know their Bible, at least be familiar with it. So he's speaking biblical language to them in a way that they would understand. This idea of bloody hands 
clean from your blood actually comes from Ezekiel 3 and 33. But notice with me Ezekiel 3 and pick it up with me in verse number 17. The book of Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17, the Bible says this, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not a warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from the wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked and he turn not from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Now God is calling Ezekiel to ministry, to serve him as the pastor of the people in Babylon that had been transported, deported from and brought into captivity from Jerusalem. And as God is calling Ezekiel, he's saying, I'm calling you to be a watchman, which again carries a reference that a city would have walls around them. And the city would have a watchman whose job was to look out for enemies, for bandits, or for animals. So that way the city would be protected. Now the watchman's job was to have a trumpet. And if he saw the enemy, saw bandits, saw animals, he was to take his trumpet and blow the warning. Hey, danger, danger, danger. The watchman, if he blew his trumpet, it would hopefully arouse the people to make a decision to be ready to be prepared. However, if the watchman saw the enemy, saw the bandits, saw the animals, and failed to give the warning, what would happen is if the bandits would come in, those people would die not knowing the bandits had come. They would die in their sleep. They would die unprepared. And the idea was, was that even though those people died in their iniquity because of their sin, because of the circumstances, it would be the watchman's fault for failing to warn them. And that watchman would be guilty of all the blood of the people who died. However, if the watchman saw the enemy, saw the bandits, saw the animals, and he blew his trumpet, but the people ignored his warning, then the watchman would be clean from the blood of those people because he did his job. Notice it wasn't the watchman's job to make the people ready. The only job of the watchman was to warn the people. As God is now referencing this to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, your job is to give the people the message I told them. You blow the trumpet. You warn them that God is... in that they're in danger, that God is not happy, that they need to change their ways. If you give them a warning, there's the expectation that they'll get right. However, Ezekiel, if you don't give the warning, they will die in their own iniquity, but their blood will I require at your hands. It'll be your fault because you were supposed to warn them. However, Ezekiel, if you do warn them and they don't listen, you're not responsible. You did your job. Now, as as soul winners, we have a responsibility to give the gospel to everyone. Now, if we fail to warn people, the Bible says that God will require their blood in our hands. It was our job to warn them. The idea is if we do warn them that they will respond. However, if we warn them and they don't respond, 
we are clear from the blood of them. Our job is to warn. Our job is not to save because we can't save anybody. All we can do is give people information and they do, they make their own decision based off the information given to them. But our job is a serious job to warn the people of the danger, to tell the people what God has told us to tell them. What is this? That they are sinners. And because of their sin, they've offended a holy, righteous God. But there's a way of escape through Jesus Christ, and they must personally accept Christ as their Savior. We give that information the best we can, and we are clear from the blood of those people. But if we fail to warn them, then we're responsible. So when Paul is telling the church, uh, these people at Corinth, that I'm free from the blood, I'm clean from your blood, it carries the idea that the Apostle Paul had done his best to warn every person in that specific location about the gospel, to teach them about Christ, and that he has done his best. He has got clean hands. Now, as we see this, we also see that the Paul had a pattern. He had a purpose. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Romans. We'll get back to the book of Acts in just a moment. But we're setting up now the outline of what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, or for, uh, the book of Acts chapter 18. Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Notice, if you don't mind, in Romans chapter 1, and verse number 14. The book of Romans chapter 1 and in verse number 14. The apostle Paul writes, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For those of you who ever need an easy outline to preach, here's the three I am's. I am a debtor. I am ready. I am not ashamed. Found right in here. Paul starts off by saying, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Paul's a debtor. What does it mean? Does he owe them money? He is a debtor not to them specifically, but he is a debtor to God. That God had given him the gospel. And he had a responsibility because God saved him to go tell others how he got saved. By the way, you have that same thing. God saved you and you owe God a great debt. How do you pay that debt? By telling everyone. Every single person. Paul says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Who is this? The Greeks would be the people who would know the Greek language. Barbarians in ancient world times were not just the people who wore furs and went grr and went around the plains. In the ancient world, during in literary style, a barbarian was anyone who didn't know the Greek language. Just as simple. They could be very sophisticated. They were just someone who didn't know the Greek language. So Paul is saying, I am responsible to give the gospel to every person, whether they're Greek 
or they don't read the Greek language. I'm to give it to everyone. There's no one I'm not supposed to give that. I'm a debtor to everyone, both to the wise and the unwise. I'm not just supposed to give the gospel to smart people. I'm to give the gospel to every person, whether they know the Greek language, whether they don't, whether they're sophisticated or not, whether they're rich or poor. I'm to give the gospel to everyone. God saved me and God has given me to be a watchman to warn everyone. He also said in verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel. He says, because I'm a debtor, I'm also ready to preach the gospel. I'm ready to preach. Who am I going to preach it to? To them that are Rome also. Notice with me if you don't mind. In verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm a debtor. I'm ready and I'm not ashamed. Why is it that so many people have bloody hands? Because they're ashamed. They're ashamed to be a Christian. They don't want people to know that they're a Christian. And so they have bloody hands because they're ashamed of what God has done for them. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. What do you have to do in order to get saved? Believe the gospel. That's it. I need to give the gospel to everyone because God gave me the gospel and I got saved. Now I need to go tell everyone else so they can get saved. Notice this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As we turn to uh, Acts chapter 18, we see this as the outline. Notice first of all, to the Jew first. To the Jew first. Pick it up with me in verse number one. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately coming from Italy. Now remember, Rome is in the middle of Italy. So they came from Italy, specifically in that Rome area, with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came to them. Now, from time to time, the Roman Empire experienced bouts of anti-Semitism. Emperor Claudius had banished all the Jews from Rome. Aquila and Priscilla happened to be living at Rome at this time. They were affected from this persecution, and so they fled, and they decided to go settle somewhere else, hopefully, where they wouldn't get persecuted. You know what we see here? That God is always previous. That God had already caused this Roman emperor to go chase out all the Jewish people just so Aquila and Priscilla could be here waiting for him at Corinth. That God had already had it prepared. God knew what he was doing. He already had two friendly faces that could work with Paul. Now, every Jewish boy was taught a trade. Imagine that. From a young child, every child was taught how to work. And to work and have a trade, to have something Even the most famous rabbis were expected to support themselves in gainful occupation so they could receive no remuneration for their teaching. That was just how it was designed. So that way you wouldn't pay the person to preach. They would be able to preach no matter if they got paid or not. They wanted to have the freedom uh, and God had designed it so the preacher could not have to have his message Uh, modified because someone owns the purse strings. Paul had learned how to weave goat's hair into a cloth 
from which tents and cloaks and curtains were made. So as Paul had gone to Corinth, he needs to support himself for a while. He begins to work. As he begins to work, it just happens to be two other Jewish people who were tent makers happen to get put here. They're both new in the area and they started just to talk to each other as they were working. Notice this, contacts were made at work that were going to be lasting contacts that were going to be the basis of this church of Corinth. Pick it up with me in verse number three. And because he, Paul, was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. For by their occupations, they, all of them, Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul, were tent makers. He was able to befriend them. What happened as they befriend, they started to uh, say, all right, let's just kind of hang together. And so as a good Jewish person, as he's going to the Jewish first, verse number four, <clears throat> And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, Paul would go and reason with them. Notice that word reason. That's a good word. He's not debating. He's not trying to argue. He's giving a logical presentation of the gospel. He's logically bringing these people from the known scriptures that they have of the Old Testament and bringing them to a logically brought path that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. He reasoned with them every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews, notice this, and the Greeks. Paul started to get so much influence that Gentile people would show up at the synagogue just to hear Paul. They wanted to hear the message too. So now a crowd is starting to build up. Notice now something else happens. Verse number five. Now when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, what happened is that the rest of Paul's missionary team arrived. And when Paul's missionary team arrived, it did a couple things for Paul. First of all, the gift of money received from his friends from Philippi. So the church of Philippi gave money to Paul uh, to. Timothy and Silas. They came back and said, Paul, hey, they gave you a love offering. They gave you a pretty chunk of money. Here you go. They wanted to help the ministry. They wanted to go things up there. Paul said, wonderful. What happened is that there was enough money that Paul was able to quit his secular job and concentrate on missionary work full time. We know that if uh, we're praise the Lord for every pastor who's bivocational, but every bivocational pastor is limited on what he could do with the ministry because he's got to feed his family, feed himself. He's got to work and make a good testimony. He can't just be bumming it off. But now that some finances had come in, he now was able to set aside his job and concentrate full time on what God had given him to do. This was a very big deal. Now, the presence of his missionary team also gave him his moral support. He had backup. He had Silas, who had been his partner, Timotheus, who had been his disciple. Now that they showed up, he's got him, Aquila, Priscilla. He's got Silas. He's got Timothy. He's got a nice core group. And now he's able to preach just a little bit stronger. You know, there is something to go when you have just a couple people in church. You don't want to shake the boat too much. You want things to keep going. You don't want everyone to get offended and leave. But when you get a core group that you know that's not going to leave, that's not going to be shaken, now a preacher could be a little bit more bold. Now he could say some things that really need to be said. Notice what happens, verse number five. Then when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed 
in the spirit. This expression pressed in the spirit carries the idea of single minded abandon. Now that he's got his back up here, I got one job and one job only. There's one thing I have in mind, one thing that needs to be done. Notice what he does. He was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now that the backup's here, now that he's got the moral support, now that he doesn't have to have support for a job, remember, he's working for a living. What happens if he fins everyone and now no one wants to buy his stuff? You know, unfortunately, the golden rule, he of the gold has the rules. And he doesn't want to purposely just offend people, but now he has the freedom to say what he wants to, and he doesn't have to worry about the backlash. And so he goes and points blank says... Jesus was Christ. I've been telling you about it week after week. Now make a decision. Are you going to accept Christ or not? Are you going to believe that Jesus is Christ or not? I've given you all this stuff. What more do you have to have for you to accept? Are you going to accept him? Are you not? Are you going to get saved? Are you not? Are you going to believe or are you not? Pretty powerful. Again, that boldness came. Verse number six. And when they oppose themselves, there's another good phrase there. When people reject the gospel, what they're doing is they're not hurting the preacher. They're hurting themselves. When someone rejects the gospel, they're putting their ticket to hell. They have a bad future ahead of them. They are opposing themselves. They're hurting themselves. They are condemned already. The Bible says in John chapter three, They are already on their way to hell. They are already going without God's blessings. They are hurting themselves in so many ways. Paul brought them to the place of decision. What are you going to do? Stop talking about it. Stop guessing. Stop hemming and hawing. Are you going to believe in Christ? These people made a decision. They made a decision to oppose themselves, to hurt themselves. Verse 6, and when they oppose themselves in blaspheme, meaning they've rejected God, and now they're saying, forget you and your God, we're tired of this. He shook his raiment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth, I'll go to the Gentiles. Fine, if you don't want to listen to me, I'll go to other people, but I am clear. I have taken all my time to present to you the gospel. I'm not guilty. If you die and go to hell, it's not my fault. I've given you every opportunity to get saved. They oppose themselves. I'm clean from your blood. Isn't that a powerful testimony? Would be if we had that type of testimony that there's no blood in our hands that we've warned everyone that God's given us to warn. Well, we may not be able to do anything about the past, but we could start from where we are and say there's no more bloody hands. I'm going to warn everybody that God's given me to warn. So we go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Starting at verse number seven, we could see as he starts going to the Gentiles. Verse seven, he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God whose house was hard or joined hard to the synagogue. So Paul didn't have to look far to find a new meeting place. He was able to go to the building right next door. When it talks about that the building was hard fast, that means it's the building that's connected to it. So you'd have the synagogue and then the building that's right attached to it is Justice's house. So, all right, instead of meeting over there, we're just going next door. Great, wonderful. God already had it provided. 
Justus was a religious man who got saved. He too was a Roman citizen. Verse number 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Now the synagogue had two important offices. This may be information you didn't know about synagogues. The first important office of the synagogue was called the angel of the synagogue. The angel of the synagogue, his job, he was the regular minister who was responsible to pray, to preach, to take care of the law, and appoint who shall read it. So that was the first officer of the synagogue. The second officer of the synagogue would be the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was in charge of the other affairs, including regulating the church service, making sure things are taken care of and organized. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue and he got saved. So the guy who's in charge of running the services over the synagogue, he got saved and this man had lots of influence. Verse 8, and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So his conversion had a great impact on those who attended. Many people got saved, many Jews, many Gentiles. And they developed the Corinthian congregation And this congregation became one of the largest, one of the most gifted, and one of the most influential churches of this age. In fact, outside of the church of Antioch and Jerusalem, Corinth was the largest church. Most of the churches that we read about in the Bible had about 30 to 40 members. We can relate. The church of Corinth had about 120, which was considered a mega church back then. Remember, most of the churches were very tiny and very small. That was just how they were set up. Uh, Church of Corinth had lots of saved people. Lots of people got saved, lots of influential, lots of rich people. This made this church unique in this, that it wasn't one that was struggling for money. We can relate. (laughs) On the struggling, not the... (laughs) But it was a church that was set up differently. Rich people, influential people people that had lots of gifts. They weren't just bottom of the barrel people. These were people that had talents and skills and spiritual gifts that they were able to provide and to help that local church do what it should do, or that's the idea of it. So this became a very special church. Now God intervenes right here. Verse number nine, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. So Paul I'm going to let you know that you need to preach. Don't hold back. Don't be afraid of them. You preach. I got your back. Verse number 10, for I am with thee. By the way, if God has your presence, you can do anything. Or as long as God says he's going to give you his presence, as long as God's got your back, you could do anything. You'd face anyone. God plus one is always a majority. This is emboldening Paul. But notice this, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. That's a great encouragement. God says, I got a lot of people here. I got a lot of people believe in me. You're fine. Now, this is going to set up something different. Up until this time, the Apostle Paul had done a quick uh, method. He would go to a church, preach really quick, and then leave and set someone there to try to teach a disciple. And he would go quickly uh, one church to another. 
This was a changing point. This is a point that Paul ended up staying a long time. In fact, in the next five years, Paul spent majority of his time in only two churches, Corinth and Ephesus. This was a change in his ministry, a change in how God had allowed things to go before. Instead of just doing a quick run, he was to stay, invest, and teach this church, not just move on, but let's stay and let's work and let's get things going. What a great uh, opportunity he had. Notice in verse number 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Verse number 11 is going to be important just for the idea of basic Bible knowledge. He was at Corinth for a year and a half. He spent there investing. A year and a half in Paul time is a very important time. That means he spent a lot of time teaching every day. He wasn't just preaching on Sundays. He was teaching every day. He was discipling, bringing people along. He invested. He was working hard at trying to reach them. Then we come to another principle that we're going to find in the rest of the book of Acts chapter 18 is that God working with them. Before we hit this principle, let me show you uh, what we're going to hit it from. Notice with me the gospel record of Mark chapter 16. The gospel record of Mark chapter 16. Now inside of where we just read, God promised that he was going to be with Paul. Notice with me in Mark chapter 16. I want to show you an important principle found within the Great Commission. Mark 16, notice with me in verse number 15. Mark 16 and verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the Great Commission. Notice with me in uh, verse number 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them. If you've never marked that phrase in Mark 16, verse 20, I encourage all of our soul winners to mark that one. The Lord working with them and confirm the word with signs following. So God says, go preach the gospel to every creature. It gives more instructions. Then the disciples obey. They go out, but they don't go out by themselves. The Lord working with them that they were not all by themselves. Do you know that when you go knock on a door, you don't go knock and then Jesus says, all right, hey, I'll go back here and I'm going to see how you're doing. When Jesus goes with us, he goes before us. He's there with us and he stays afterward. That before we knock on a door, God is already working on that heart to prepare them to receive the track, to receive it. Then while we go, he gives us his presence, gives us the words to say, gives us wisdom while we're talking to the person. Then when we leave, God stays with them and continues to work afterwards. God is doing the work. He's not doing, we're not doing it all by ourselves. The Lord working with him. God had given this principle, promise to Paul that I'm going to be with you. I've got your presence. And God was able to work. Now, if God promised that he's going to take care of things, God is going to be with you, that God is going to be at work, you can trust him. Now, the problem is, is that we get to the place where we don't trust him. We think that we've got to take things in our own hands. So sure enough, Paul's going to be tested. Sure enough, there's going to be problems coming up. Because the Jewish people that didn't believe, that opposed themselves, they're not satisfied with not believing for themselves. 
They also want Paul to shut up completely. They don't want this church of Corinth to succeed. They want to do everything they can. But they knew that Paul and that church of Corinth had a lot of influence. That Paul had built up a lot of influence with the city, with the influential. They had the mayor sitting there, the former chief ruler of the synagogue. They had other people. So the Jewish people waited their time. Verse number 12, back at Acts 18, verse 12. And when Galileo was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So what happened is they waited for the new ruler to show up. The guy who was appointed to, from the Roman government to oversee the area. So the guy shows up, takes his time in his office. The Jewish people take insurrection. This carries the idea of an, a riot. They're very ruly. You know, if you can imagine 2020, they're burning down shops and whatever else to show how, um, how upset they are and how they have the right to, you know, whatever. They grab Paul, they bring him up to this governor and they start making accusations. Verse 13, saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth. So the Jewish people come up with one accord saying this Paul guy's trouble. This Paul guy's trouble. This Paul guy's trouble. Well, what'd he do? This Paul guy is teaching everyone not to worship God correctly. He's not doing it right. We're not happy with the way he's doing it. Paul gets ready to start to defend himself before he could finish, or before he could even say a word, uh, the governor takes over. Notice with me, verse 14. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galileo said unto the Jews, if we're a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would I with you should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and of your own law, not even my law, but if your law, Look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. So these guys come up. Paul's being mean. We don't like what he's doing. He's not doing it right. Galeo says, what in the world are you doing? It's not a matter of law. It's, it's your own thing. You go take care of it yourself. Get out of here. Don't show up like this again. Leave me alone. Don't do it. He kicked him out. Now, because he kicked him out, there was already a little bit of anti-Cinemism mixed in with the influence that Paul had. Now, without a doubt, there were some people that probably were not totally right with God, maybe some mature people, maybe even some saved people that, had some, that Paul had influence with, that they liked him. But they went and grabbed these guys and said, you don't talk to my preacher this way. You don't talk about Paul this way. We love Paul. And you want to try to get him in trouble? Deserve it? Now again, Paul didn't approve of what happened for verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Solithius, the chief ruler of the synagogue. By the way, this is one of the guys who dragged Paul to court. He's now the chief ruler. He's the guy in charge of the synagogue. They grabbed Solithius, the chief ruler, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo cared not for none of these things. So they come up. God took care of it. Now, again, Paul didn't authorize the beating, would not condone the beating. But these people, you can't control everybody. Hey, listen, we don't like what you did with Paul. We don't like what you're doing here. Don't you do this to my preacher anymore. And they took him out and beat the guy. 
Don't you mess with my pastor. Don't you mess with my preacher. Now again, Paul's not condoning. You understand that. Paul wouldn't have authorized this. They took it in their own hands. Do you think this guy ever wanted to say anything bad about Paul ever again? That was kind of taken care of. Paul didn't have to defend himself. God was able to do it for him. Well, the governor had said, what are you thinking about? Why are you even bringing, why are you wasting my time? Get out of here. God had things well in hand. The principle for us is that God is working with us. He can take care of us. We can trust him even when circumstances look grim. We don't have to panic and go to our own devices. We can trust God. <clears throat> now with this, one more principle if you don't mind. We have the historical context of 1 Corinthians. So Paul leaves Corinth and he goes starts the church in Ephesus. We talked about that on last Wednesday night, the school of one Tyrannus. He's there at Ephesus for about two and a half years. Now, during this time, Paul has some visitors. Uh, in those days, Corinth had gathering places of Christians in here and there. Remember, it's now a church of 120 people plus, but they don't have a single meeting place. They've been meeting together in a house over here and a house over here and a house over here and assembling together as they can. Um, and so there are a lot of different places. And many of those homes were of prominent believers. Paul's in Ephesus when some of those prominent believers went to go see Paul about the various issues that are occurring within the church of Corinth. They told Paul of the squabbling, of the rivalries, of the immorality, of the lawsuits, of the abuse of grace and gifts. Doubtless, many of them thought Paul would just drop what he was doing in Ephesus and rush right over to Corinth and set things in order. But that's not what happened. Paul wrote a letter and told him to read this out loud to the church. So as the letter arrived, they go find a big meeting place, probably of justice, who was right next to the synagogue, gathered all of the members with the idea that Paul has given us a letter and he has asked us to read it out loud. So let's gather everyone and let's read this letter together. And that's the setting that we have in 1 Corinthians, that you have to keep in mind that you now have an assembly of people that's not been doing right. Someone in Witten told Paul all the things that were going on. Paul didn't show up physically. He's doing a great work in Ephesus. He can't leave right now. So he writes a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God's going to do a work. And now, keep in mind, the church has said it. They've sang their songs. They're settled. Take the offering. Everyone's ready. They take the scroll and they said, the, Paul the apostle has now written us a letter. Listen out loud. And that's the setting that we have for this book. They are now getting ready to hear for the first time as Paul is going to unleash through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a rebuke after rebuke after rebuke with the idea, get right with God. Get right with God. Get right with God. With that being the setting, 
we want you to keep that in mind as we now are going to turn to the rest of the book starting on our next service. We're going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians. You have the background a little bit about where it was started. Paul had invested in it. God had worked. They had prominent people. They were in the midst of a very lewd city, a sexual city, a city of hardworking people who were wealthy and drunk. And you have these people who got saved. But in this church, there's a lot of wealthy, influential, rich people, as well as very hardworking people, poor people, people of all sorts, all gathered together. And with this all, Paul was still able to look to them and said, I'm clean from the blood. I have clean hands, not bloody hands. I've given all of you the gospel and I've done my best in that year and a half to give everyone inside of the city of Corinth the opportunity to hear the gospel. As we approach this, what about you? Could it be said that your hands are clean or are they bloody? Have you been taking every opportunity God has given to you to witness to the people around you? To witness to the people at work, to witness to your family members, to witness to your neighbors, to witness to the gas station attendant? Have you been taking advantage of those divine opportunities to give the gospel? Paul made things simple in Corinth. I'm not going to be fancy. I'm not going to do research on, uh, on the gods and mythologies. I'm not going to study the cults. I'm going to just pretend to know one thing and one thing alone. Christ and him crucified. Some of you major on a lot of things. That's not the gospel. Some people can tell me all the statistics for the Green Bay Packers for the last hundred years. We should major on one thing. Some of you can tell me how to beat a video game level of every place in 1997 of that specific game that came out all those years ago. Some of you can tell me about your different brush strokes and all the different angles to take the most beautiful picture at all. Some of you can tell all the financial things. Some of you can do this or that. Name every genre of plant in the world. Some of you may be good at this and that. But Paul says, let's keep things simple. I come to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I want, don't, I want it to be said that I have clean hands, that I'm clean from the blood of everyone there. Could that be said of you? If not, the encouraging thing is you go to the Lord and say, Lord, from where I am right now, help me to be a faithful witness. How many take advantage of all those divine opportunities you place to me to tell people about the gospel? Help me to be wise about it. Help me to get influence with people so I can tell them the gospel. Help me to be able to reason with them the things about God. Help me to bring them to the place of decision. Will you accept Christ or not? Help me to open up those doors that I could present Christ and him crucified. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920-530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.